Welcome to Outsider Within, Critical Conversations in Education, a podcast dedicated to those whose voices are often silenced and whose unique knowledge and resources provide insight as well as practical solutions in the field of education. We will talk with leading experts who share their own experiences and expertise in navigating critical issues using their unique perspective. In this episode of The Outsider Within, our guest is Dr. Jennifer Marquettes, who is the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Wellbeing and Education at the University of Calgary. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here and to visit with you all today. It's wonderful to have you. We're so excited that you're in here with us today. Could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? As you said in the introduction there, I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, which means I'm affiliated with a very distinct group of people that trace our heritage back to Red River. I'm very proud to be Métis, and I often travel in these circles of really amazing uh, Métis women. And it's yeah, just such a privileged space to be in. And I bring that part of myself into the academy as an Indigenous education teacher. I do this work also in areas of professional learning with school divisions I'm partnered with. I also prioritize community-based research partnerships with school divisions and First Nations and Métis communities in different parts of Northern Alberta, Grand Prairie, High Level, Fort Vermilion, High Prairie, all these really beautiful communities in Northern Alberta. I do a lot of work in education and I actually started off as a an elementary Montessori teacher. I worked in public schools for 15 years. And so part of myself, that teacher, teacher self is always there. I'm always thinking like a teacher, but I also think having that Montessori background, I like to share uh, the power in different relationships. Like I just, that comes very naturally for me in the classroom, you know, you're not at the front, you're always uh, blending in and supporting and following the lead of the students. And so I, I think that has really carried over into the research I do now, where I'm following the lead of the communities, you know, asking those questions about what their priorities are, and then framing the research before it even goes to ethics with them. And so that's the work I find really rewarding. And yeah, that's what I seek to do. Oh, and I, I haven't mentioned my affiliation. I'm a, an assistant professor in the Workland School of Education and in the Faculty of Social Work. So I'm appointed between the two faculties at the University of Calgary in Canada. So we're in the United States. <laughs> and here, our current social and political climate is impacting education. And so as a international guest, I'm wondering if, you all in Canada are feeling any type of reverberation from what's happening here in the States. Oh, absolutely. And I'd say here in Alberta, our political climate is very similar to the U.S. There's been a lot of reform with our education curriculum to... <laughs> I'm kind of laughing about it, but it's it's not it's not a laughing matter. It's it's quite terrible and appalling. So many of my colleagues have spoken up against the changes that have been made or are being made presently in in Alberta. Here, the new program of studies is so regressive; it's at times racist in what's prioritized and what's being taught. The resources that are associated with the new programs of study that include words like. Um, squaw, 
which is a derogatory term for Indigenous women. It's just appalling to see the changes that are being made. And I think people are particularly in those places of power are feeling emboldened to be able to make sweeping changes, to take education back out of the hands of educators and to make revisions to curriculum in similar ways that I believe it's done across the border in the, in the U.S. where, you know, the politicians hire people to write curriculum that aren't necessarily educators. And that is just so foreign. Like the, the programs of studies here have been written by educators for years, like in collaboration. And then, you know, the development of resources then often comes after that and is reflective of the curriculum rather than driving the curriculum as it's looking to do now. So it's quite divisive. <laughs> Some people are very much for it because they see it as a return to, you know, a more familiar time historically where certain values were being taught and perpetuated and certain groups were being privileged. But for the majority of people, including so many teachers, they're just having such a hard time taking it seriously that this change could even be happening. We've really focused, all the universities across Canada have mandatory Indigenous education courses for their pre-service teachers so that they know more when they go into the classroom. They know more about the history of colonization. They know more about the oppression and the systemic racism that exists so that they can teach differently and do better. And the changes to the programs of study here in Alberta has almost wiped out completely any mention of Indigenous history at all. And if it is, it's very token and often historically inaccurate. And it just continues to perpetuate those narratives of colonization and, and that savior mentality of these, <laughs> you know, uh, savage Indians like that need to be, um, yeah, saved. Yes, so much of that, Jennifer, is reflective of what's going on in our context as well. Some of your work has revolved around reconciliation and incorporating Indigenous knowledge into colonial uh, structures. So with that and knowing how, as you just mentioned, you know, we are sort of taking steps back to make the dominant population more comfortable while, again, subjugating the uh, more Indigenous folks. How do you see your work speaking back to educational challenges faced by historically resilient people? Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. For me, it's I'm, I am in that place of privilege where I get to work with these pre-service teachers and I get to really highlight the strengths of Indigenous education and Indigenous values and worldviews that look at the whole child that see the the responsibility of raising children to be shared amongst the community and all people and to really consider the emotional physical mental and spiritual well-being of youth in all aspects of education and so i i do feel really lucky to get to work with these teachers who then head out into the schools with such enthusiasm and and a different a different basis for their beliefs and positioning as they work with Indigenous people or they talk or introduce Indigenous topics. They're coming from a place that, of being more knowledgeable, but also wanting to, to do better. So uh, feeling that sort of reverence for the subject area and responsibility uh, to not shy away. So, you know, knowing that there's going to be mistakes, but, you know, they're really taking up the work. And so um, that's really, I don't know, I feel just so lucky to be in this role to be able to work with those pre-service teachers. And so I feel like the work matters. 
it's the most challenging course I've ever taught. I've taught about 25 different <laughs> courses in the undergraduate program, but Indigenous education is my favorite. I, you know, I start off on the first day and let them know that this course has the potential to change their life. And, and I don't say that lightly <laughs> because it also puts a huge weight on my shoulders to make sure it can. <laughs> and so I'm always just so pleased by the end of the course when they're hanging around after to say how much impact it has had on them or in the months and years to come after hearing back from them that it has impacted their careers and 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 their lives the other work i guess that would also speak to that question is uh with communities so some of the research partnerships i have up north i have met with chief and council and metis local presidents and formed partnerships before beginning the work with school divisions where everyone's you know at the table and and committed to acting on what we find out in the research and so when i'm up there for research and asking the students what cultural teachings they would like to have in their schools what is important to them for achieving their their future goals in life after high school we get to sit around the table afterward with all that data all that information that the students have shared and their families have shared and other community members and elders have shared and then work with that and to put things into action. So we're developing courses around the different first languages that have been in a lot of cases almost lost. The one community I work with has three beaver speakers left in their whole community. Beavers also spoken in other parts of the country. Um, there's a community here, uh, Sutina uh, First Nation that are also beaver speakers. So we're working to uh, revitalize language because the students have said they want to learn it. You know, they want to be able to speak to their mom or speak to their grandma. Yeah, it's just so rewarding to be part of things that are feeling like we're making a change, like we're making a difference. And, and it's in response to the suggestions that are coming right from the students and their families. And so those, those priorities are being put forward and and I'm just there to <laughs> gather the information and share it and, and try and support the planning that comes after that. Are these informal kinds of things that you're doing, like outside of the public school systems? Or oh, where, how do they? Within. So these are being <laughs> done within the school systems. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. So. If they're being done in the school systems, how are these new policies going to impact this type of work? Oh, that's such a good question. And and it's hard to know for sure. I mean, we have another election coming up soon. And so there's almost this hope and mentality that, you know, if we just wait till that election, maybe, maybe those changes won't be all brought in. But, uh, you know, trying to work within the system that exists, there is some flexibility within the curriculum. We have the opportunity within our province to create locally developed courses that count for credit. And so a lot of these language courses that, you know, the example I gave earlier, the that are being developed in Satina to teach beaver language in the schools, we can apply to Alberta education and use those same credited courses with the communities up north. Just for the beaver language speakers, we also have, I work with Cree communities as well, and, and other areas there have Diné speakers. And so we'll have to um, keep broadening our <laughs> uh, scope of possibilities, depending on the school division and the local context. But right now, the two schools within the the one school division are working towards a Cree language program and a beaver language program at each of the sites. 
And so uh, with that also too, there are times when they've taught things like ribbon skirt making or beading or drum making. And those are uh, sometimes offered as credited courses and other times they're taught as like extracurricular over lunch hours and after school. But we're looking to work with the nations and with the Métis local to develop courses that are credit and part of like a regular part of the education system. So it's not an add-on and the students can have those cultural teachings as part of their education as they should be. That's really remarkable, Jennifer. And I'm, I'm just wondering if because of all of this is like upswell and groundswell from the community and to bring back language, do you feel a backlash brewing from colonial structures in your context um, or more conservative structures that would look at this as a plus one or an add-on as opposed to something that should be core to the curriculum? There's always that potential for pushback. It could be brewing right now under the surface and and we haven't seen it yet. We're just so early in some of these partnerships and projects to have really seen that come out. But I do know that the school division is working really hard to educate more broadly with community members and school board trustees and to have them all present for professional learning that goes on and to be part of the discussions all the way along so that they're reflective of all the stakeholders' needs and values. But you were right. There are times where there's very differing opinions within the school divisions and within the schools. Things like having a gay-straight alliance within schools uh, took a very long time in coming, even with provincial mandates and federal mandates for those to exist. In these rural and remote communities, it's even more difficult for school board administration to enact the things that are needed, you know, to, to exist in all these schools. And so as far as like the language revitalization, I could see people that would think, oh, that's good, but not for my kids, or maybe not in our school, depending on which community it is with. But I do feel really lucky that the schools that we've chosen to begin with in our partnership have about a 95% population of students from each of those communities, those nations. And so I anticipate that on whole, families are going to be quite supportive. And um, if not, maybe reserved in their enthusiasm, because they've been let down by some of these colonial systems and structures for so long, that maybe not getting their hopes up that we're going to be able to implement these things or make the change. Uh, but I did sit with an elder last time who said, even if you do half of these things, it's going to be amazing. Wow, that's pretty exciting. So in your work, would you consider yourself an activist? And if so, how does your activism manifest? I'd like to think of myself as an activist. And it, I guess it manifests in a lot of ways, you know, being present and visible and showing up in different spaces supporting different events that happen across our city here, but also showing up and being present in the communities I'm working with. So last time I was up there on my last day, it was the, the day before the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And so each of the schools had events planned. And I went to as many as I could drive to uh, before my plane took off and visited and just, you know, participated in what the students were doing. So the one school had a teepee out front and um, brought chairs and an outside fire pit 
with like burning wood, <laughs> which wouldn't happen at any of the schools down south here, I'm sure, because you'd need special permits and and there would be, you know, you'd need uh, all the lawyers would say <laughs> that there's not enough permissions for safety. But the things you can do in a more uh, rural setting, um, it was just beautiful. They'd boiled tea over the fire. They had bannock uh, made by one of the school assistants that does a lot of their foods program. And they took Bannock over across the road to the leadership. They have like the community leadership housed right across the street from the school. And so they had invited elders and parents and, and different people to come and be part of that day. And so that was a, a really lovely stop on my way. Another school had a tea dance in their gym and all the students, you know, wearing their orange shirts went outside for a picture by their teepee. Each of the students that wanted to got up and spoke about the importance of the day. And so just to be able to be present and, and participate, to be consistent in my support of just the school division and the, and the communities they work with and that they serve, um, being able to be present and seen. You know, the students that are like, oh, I remember you. You were that one that like did those lunch and learns over the computer last year and the next year and, <laughs> and, and, and you keep showing up and you keep showing up. And so I think that's, you know, one way to, to be an activist, but I also think a part of that role is listening. And so <laughs> I think that's a shift. I think people think of activists as, you know, the people that speak the loudest, but I think activism is, is sometimes listening, listening deeply to the needs and the voices within the communities that are sometimes silenced underserved and and just to be able to to listen and find ways to make things happen based on what they're asking for you know i think who was it uh, linda tuwai smith said that indigenous people are the most researched people in the world and so much of that research has been extractive you know where people have gone in and done studies and then they've benefited because it's made a name for them and and advanced their career and helped them get their phd or their Full professorships and publications and all those things but i see the the importance of this work as being of service to the communities i'm working with and the ones i belong to you know finding ways to support research that's important to the metis nation developing conferences creating publication opportunities for metis scholars so that their careers can move forward too <laughs> so that uh you know there's a space for for these stories and the research that's being done for communities and with communities and by communities <laughs> and not on communities. I think I went on a long winding tangent there, but I do see that importance of listening and being of service in the work that I do. Absolutely. And I know of your work, especially starting a journal specifically for, am I getting this correct, specifically yeah. for the authors and, and scholars. Um, but with, with that in mind, the idea, the Ferrarian idea of some voices being silenced and amplifying those voices that have been historically silenced. Um, historically, education has run the spectrum from indoctrination to liberation. And that's probably no more true than in your context and, you know, historically in the United States. Where do you see us today? Oh, I, some things are huge strides forward and other things are still perpetuating the same. Again and again, the students in the Indigenous education course, they have these like aha moments of, oh my goodness, like schools are colonizing systems. 
and I'm part of that. And they have this realization that they're perpetuating, you know, those colonial myths and, and stereotypes. And so, well, I think we like to think we've come really far. There's still a long way to go. And having that awareness is, is a really important starting place. Speaking specifically to Indigenous communities, Indigenous people, um, you know, the history of residential schools is still very recent and not enough people know. <laughs> there is more awareness and there seems to be more each year. There's more knowledge about the existence of residential schools, but even as far as, as knowing kind of those firsthand stories, that's still a pretty steep learning. We share a video called We Were Children and it's a story of two two residential school survivors told from their perspectives and so it's not the type of thing that's often shared in like the K to 12 school system we often hear students say you know they need to teach something that's age appropriate or grade level appropriate and so a lot of the harder truths are left out and so as adults they're coming to those truths for the first time and then they get angry and upset that they didn't know before um, to know about the past system like to have people relegated to communities and not able to leave without the permission of the indian agent and to know that that was a completely illegal system and then when the government disbanded it they ordered all the indian agents to destroy all the documents associated with it so that really trying to cover up that that even happened and so that's not been taught in in our school systems and so as the students learn these things they just get more and more angry that their education hadn't taught them these things and so we've come a long way with some things but there's still a long way to go in the truth telling so a lot of people want to jump to that reconciliation and try and make things better. But unless you have the truth and that knowledge base, you can't just skip over it. It's amazing how the things that you describe going on in Canada around the Indigenous nations are things that are going on in the United States around chattel slavery, for example. This idea that we have to protect our children. We don't want people to feel bad about their ancestral families' perspectives and stances that they took. But by the same token, when we save our children from these uncomfortable conversations, if you will, we're also protecting the status quo of colonialism or institutional racism or whatever you want to call it. And so it just goes on and on. But rather than end our conversation there on that sort of dark um, <laughs> pending cloud, let's talk about what gives you hope. What gives you hope in this time of, of transition and change and upheaval? What gives you hope? Oh, so many things. Seeing those students and they come to mind first because I just finished teaching uh, Indigenous education. It's an eight week course and they're all heading into the schools now for for field experience. And so that always fills me with hope. <laughs> it's a long, uh, a long journey. It's a hard road. And, you know, we try and support each other as instructors of the course, too, because it's a lot that we take on emotionally ourselves. You know, a lot of people, you know, we're speaking about our families. We're speaking about the experiences of people we know, like my aunts and, and my second cousins, my mom's cousins who've been to residential school. Some people, it's their parents and some people, it's their own experience. And so that's a hard 
road and a hard conversation to have again and again to to have to repeat those experiences each year as we take the students on this journey. It can be a lot, but it is, yeah, as I said, so rewarding and valuable. And so I have a lot of hope seeing these students heading out to the field and there's less resistance each year. Like we can see, visibly see people coming in with more knowledge and more exposure to these stories and more experience and more openness. And so that creates a lot of hope. I'm also hopeful when when my projects get funded <laughs> by the, the federal uh, funding agencies here, uh, that they trust that, you know, that working with communities can be done and that I can go into these partnerships with an openness to not have like predetermined questions or predetermined pathways for the research that we can decide those together and that, that that's being valued enough that they're putting funding behind it. So that does also make give me a lot of hope for the future that we're we're moving away from working with indigenous communities in those extractive ways and predetermined as though we come in with with our set agenda and <laughs> can't work alongside our partners. I'm also hopeful when I see the students in the schools <laughs> because they get excited when when we're starting to or as we do things. So I'm, I shouldn't say starting because a lot of the schools have things happening that do reflect the students' needs and values and interests. Uh, but as we do more and more, uh, that excitement grows and that trust builds. And I've done these uh, lunch and learn panels for the last couple of years where I bring Indigenous people in front of the students that from all different career paths and they tell their stories. So it's, it's relational. They, they talk about being homesick, being so far from their communities when they went to university themselves and driving, speeding on the way home on weekends to get there fast because they missed, missed being home or, you know, just those, those human connections that are relatable for the students. And they see it's not just a straight path into university and becoming the thing that you want, that sometimes you, you change careers three times and, you know, you do work for the post office or uh, do roofing and then, and then you get into something that opens your eyes to a whole different uh, career path than you ever maybe thought possible for yourself. And so having those panels as an opportunity to have the students see themselves in all these different people's stories and lives and as that uh, relational connection and give them that sense of anything is possible. And then having the students come to me when I'm in the school, say, does your university have a like a, a real estate program? I'm thinking about becoming a realtor. And then finding somebody, because of course our university doesn't have a real estate program, but then bringing somebody in front of them that can answer those questions. And then the students get all excited and ask questions about like, how do you save up for a house, like a down payment, or which kind of house is <laughs> a better choice for starting out, a duplex or a townhouse or a condo. And, and they ask all these great questions that maybe wouldn't have been asked in, in another classroom setting. Yeah, so that gives me hope and also brings me a lot of joy bringing Indigenous artists in front of the students and having them ask their favorite hockey team or what's the most you've ever sold a piece of artwork for? And to see that you can be an artist uh, and that you have to work really hard, but it's possible, you know, to live your passion and to live your dream and to make a go of it. And we had one artist that said he'd been pursued by several uh, art schools and he always thought he'd go to art school 
but he was always waiting for work to slow down and it never did. And so he- That's a good problem to have as an artist. <laughs> it is, it truly is. And, but he, you know, he started off, he said, I sold my art in parking lots. I went door to door, like he really hustled. And then he talked about the business side of it, how he had to like plan ahead and purchase things in advance of the next project. And then hiring people to help him write grants or write proposals for grants and, and applications for huge murals in Ottawa and the different buildings all across our province here that he's his work is uh, featured in and and so they got to hear kind of all those sides of these different positions or jobs that that people have and uh, I think it was really awesome to see the last time I went up after that artist had presented uh, one of the students painted a mural in their school I oh, just wow. <laughs> asked administration could I do it and they went for it and and so just how things kind of grow beyond even what we could possibly know is possible. I think that's what I like most about education is that, well, it's kind of that double-edged sword because people always want to know the impact and you don't get to always see the impact, but it has the potential for so much reach. That's a beautiful way to wrap this up. And Jennifer, I will say what gives me hope is you. It, what gives me hope is your work and the communities you work with that really just produce this wellspring of goodness in the world. So thank you so much for that. We are almost all out of time, but again, thank you so much for being on our podcast and we welcome your return. If you would be so kind as to come back one day. Thank you again. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you, Judith. It was such a pleasure to be with you both today. Thank you for listening to the Outsider Within podcast. We the producers are university teacher educators, and we know how hard teachers, administrators, and others who support public education work towards access and equity. We welcome your thoughts, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. Find us at criticalissuesineducation.com and be sure to follow us on social media. Yours in solidarity.